the magician's code. Welcome back to The Magician's Code, everybody. My name is Hadlin, and on this episode, we're going to speak and learn from a Canadian magician. His name is Sharn Farquhar. He's, oh man, I have to say he's been a magician I've been looking up to for a long time. He's done so much for the magic community, from performances to just being a great role model for everybody. He's been Magician of the Year through CAM, through IBM. He's uh, part of the... Fector's finger flicking frolic. Whoa, that was hard to say. And to top it all off, he's a three-time fooler. And I know, I know he's a two-time fooler, but I think one of those trophies disappeared for a moment. In addition to that, probably one of the best things is he was a contestant on a Canadian talk show called Talk About. All right. Let's jump into it. Sean Farquhar, how's it going, my man? Oh, look at you. That's good research. Wow, the talk about one threw me right off. That's very good. That's a long time ago. I'm good. And you? Yep, doing well over here in Saskatoon. It's, uh, it's you know, it's summer, so it's nice. Yeah, Saskatoon in the summer. That's um, uh, the national bird is the mosquito, right? <laughs> You're 100% correct. The mosquito. Saskatoon at the uh, Emerald Casino up by the racetrack. I did shows out there wow. a long, long time ago. And um, did outdoor shows with uh, Tommy Hunter. And I remember being eaten alive by mosquitoes. Yeah, yeah. that's awesome. <laughs> the, the cologne of the summer is bug spray. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. So, Sean, you, you've done so much. I, I'm not... I don't even know where to begin with it. I just, I guess I'll say a few things is uh, your shape of my heart routine has been one of my favorite, favorite pieces to just look back and study and see how, how a magician can craft a beautiful routine and, and make it entertaining and elegant at the same time. And I think that's a perfect example of that. I think it's um, a great study piece for magicians getting into magic because most of the moves are rudimentary. There's a couple of original little things in there that other people have equated to other things that they weren't, but most of it's rudimentary and it shows you that you don't have to, you know, uh, take it to this nth degree to make something that's beautiful and that's art. And I love, I love that if you're studying magic, there seems to be that similar argument of which is better. It's the effect, the method or the presentation. And this one, kind of knocks that out of the park for me in that I don't think any of those three are really the most important. I think we as magicians keep forgetting the fourth one uh, because we all think there's effect, there's presentation and method. And in fact, I think there's another one that's effect, how the magic affects people. And I yes. think when you were to dissect the trick, you'd see it's a great piece of music, but on its own, it's just a great piece of music that probably won't bring a lot of a feeling to you as much as melody and, and tone uh, and the tricks. If you just looked at, you know, the, the little moves that are done, you go, well, he sucks at that one and that one's okay. And that one's clever, but that's about it. But when you put the two of them together and you put it with a camera so that it really allows them to feel it, and you put the motion and the rhythm, and then it affects you. And mm -hmm. I love when I do it because I see audience members cry. <laughs> it just freaks me out because um, I think it was the San Francisco Chronicle that uh, described it as ballet with cards. And to me, that just 
made me weep because I was like, wow, I finally hit something that people really think is art. I have another piece called Unwritten that you haven't seen on video because I fight very hard to keep it off video. Oh, interesting. The last about seven years I've been doing it and uh, it's to a song by Natasha Bedingfield. And it has that same wonderful feeling and audiences just sort of jump to their feet and come running up to talk to you and they want to share their innermost thoughts all of a sudden going, this is so cool and you spoke to me and I'm like, oh, that's so good. That's amazing. That's incredible. That's, I, I believe, it's got to be, you know, deep down, any great magician wants to elicit those feelings out of people. Oh, yeah. I think I think laughing was the first. Well, first I wanted wow. When I was young and started, all I wanted was wow. And I see it now in most magicians, especially, you know, uh, with the use of the Internet and Instagram and YouTube of just going, here's a trick. And 90% of them film so you can't even see their face. It's just their chest doing something. And I yeah. go, they know it's not about them. They, they, or they don't realize that magic is about them and that they have to be part of it. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I love when, when you can create something. Once you've gone past that wow factor, uh, then you go to funny. And then I realized that making people laugh wasn't that hard. Um, I started like most, I think, as a hack with stock stuff and then worked my way to fun, great little original lines and then went to dad jokes because I found that my dad had a great saying. He said, uh, as long as you got them laughing, they'll love you. He says, if you got them laughing, they'll forgive you when you screw up. And he said, and remember, not every laugh has to be a big laugh. Sometimes the groans are better. Because think about it. If I were to challenge you now to think about comedians and you saw a great comedian, I said, what were some of the jokes? You were so busy laughing, you probably have a hard time yes. ever going back on them. But you will definitely remember the ones you groaned about. The ones <laughs> that really hurt that you went, oh, you will remember them. If they offended you, if they bugged you, those are the ones that stand out. A really great performance, you just get a feeling of it. And then there's that bad moment. And you go, oh, well, that moment, just whatever. And those ones really stand out. And so having a few groans is important. Interesting. Yeah, my dad had a line, he said, uh, uh, all comedy is good. Sometimes having a bad joke is good. You'll remember the groans more than you'll ever remember the laughs, which means you're going to remember almost all of my show. <laughs> I love it. I love yeah. it. And your dad, your grandfather, and your great grandfather were all magicians. Yeah, kind of a cool How, thing to have. That's that's incredible. Yeah, and yeah, and I raised my daughter studying magic, and she's she doesn't want to do it for a living, and I'm totally cool with that. But she's into theater. She's at the University of Victoria studying it, and uh, still has a passion for the magic community. She recently hmm. wrote an article for the Linking Ring magazine, which you know the largest publication in the world for magic, which yep. is really awesome and a proud dad moment. And it was about the love of magic, which was even cooler. Wow. Um, I don't think she'll ever be, you know, performing a whole bunch, but maybe in the future, she'll turn back to it to do some musical theater thing with magic. That would be cool. That'd be very cool. That fifth generation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, how... Or what types of advantages do you think you had having all these magicians behind you? I, hmm, that's a good question. I'm not sure they were all advantages. I think there were a few. Uh, my father didn't uh, associate with a lot of magicians when he was younger, so I didn't really feel into that sort of thing. I think that was one of the things I think he was wrong about. Um, what I did have was discipline. My dad taught me um, slights. He didn't teach me tricks. 
He taught me slights um, mm. because every time I wanted to learn a trick, he said, learn this slight. And I didn't understand it. It drove me nuts. But then later when I was, you know, in my teens and I said, I want to do this trick, he said, well, what do you think it takes? And I would piece together the slights and he go, well, then do it. And I went, oh, wow. Yeah, I can do that, right? He goes, right. Oh. And it may not be the same method, but it had the same effect. Right. And that was the coolest. It was like being given a lot of pieces of a jigsaw puzzle uh, that didn't have a picture on them. So you can put them together in any order you wanted to and then draw your picture. And then when somebody showed you a picture, you could look at the pieces and put it together yourself. Wow. So nowadays people, they buy a trick, they buy a trick, they buy a trick. Yep. And I try really hard on the stuff that I sell to make sure I explain the theory behind them and the principles. And I do the things my dad did. I break it down so that you don't have to do the same thing. You can do many other things using the same principle. Mm. I released a thing a few years ago called the HG effect. And I was recently on Penn and Teller's Foolish and so many people wrote and said, oh, wow, you use the technique in that in a totally different way. And I'm like, yep, that's why I, I was able to use something that was specifically designed for one thing and use it for another thing completely different. Interesting. Yeah, you know, I, I'm sad to say I don't own HG effect yet. So I'm going to go pick that up right after this. It's cool. I, uh, <laughs> almost everything that I've created, I didn't realize it until just recently when someone was asking me, they said, so uh, where do you find your creativity? And I said, I, I don't, it finds me. And uh, then I said the words that I'll remember. I said, I take things I don't like and I try to find ways to make me like them. And I went, you know, I didn't really like cups and balls because it just seemed repetitious. And so I created my own version of the cups and balls that I took to FISM and ambitious card. I just didn't think it had an ending. And then all of a sudden when it became, you know, a brand new deck of cards, I went, that's an ending. That's cool. Um, same thing with the HD effect. It's a version of the any card at any number, which I always found to be a really dull plot and that lay audiences don't really like it. Uh, but I wanted to make it like a three act play. Uh, each level becoming increasingly more difficult and educating the audience. So in the first phase, you know, I asked them, can you name a card and a number? And then I say, take a look, count and see. If, and when they hit it, I go, well, that was just a lucky guess. But, or maybe I helped you. And then everybody goes, what? I said, well, you gave me a lot of information. You told me the name of the card and you gave me a number. And that's a lot to work with. And they go, oh. So then I said, let's try it again. Now this time, pick out a card, look at it, put it back in the deck but you have to give me a number and they give me a number. And of course they find it. And I go and say, but you still gave me information. You gave me a number. And as long as I have some information, it's really good. In the last one, just look at a card as they go by and don't even think of a number. Just start putting cards on my hand. You can take them from the bottom, the middle, you can take them where you're going to. And when you stop, you stop. Do you have any idea how many there are? No. And I don't even know what the card is. So I have no information this time. And of course, when they turn it over, it's there. They freak out because now they know how difficult it is. We as magicians know how difficult a can is, but a layperson, if I just said, here's a deck of cards, name a card and a number, count to it, they go, oh, okay. They have no idea how difficult that is, what the odds are. But if you do it in a three phase routine where you teach them, by the time you get to the end, your response is 10 times what it would have been just because you've educated them on how difficult it is. That's amazing. That's amazing. I love that you're building upon it. Was it was it uh, always like that right from the inception of the, the yeah. effect? The idea yeah. of when I put it together was that I wanted three levels. And I wanted each level to be increasingly more difficult. And I wanted it to, in some way, educate the audience. Because my feeling, the flaw of the trick was, 
The audience doesn't know it's difficult. And they just think you're going to use some sort of sleight of hand to get to it. End of story. And they're not going to believe it's magic because they're intelligent. My audience are intelligent. So they're right. going to go, okay, he used some sleight of hand. And that's the end of the story. Well, that, that removes the magic for me. If I show them, hey, here's how you do it with sleight of hand, because I had a lot of information. Here's how I can do it with a little information. How the heck can I do it with no information? Right. Now you've gone from sleight of hand to really good sleight of hand to it's got to be freaking magic. Exactly. There's no other explanation. Yeah. Interesting. I, I like the way you think. That's, that's a very it's cool. Weird, but with all the stuff I've created, it's all based on plots that I didn't like. Uh, the book test. I never quite understood a book test when people, you know, you open it up, look at the largest word, blah, blah, blah. I was going, well, they probably memorized the book. That was my answer. Oh yeah, we use several books and they memorize several books. It's like, it just, so when I went in, I went, I'm going to tell people I memorized a book. That'll be hilarious. Go the opposite of what everybody else does. And then, then show them, you know, and look, it's blank at the end, gives that socket that they're like, Oh my God, maybe he did memorize book. Is he like, of course I didn't, which even is more puzzling, which makes it more fun. Yeah. Wow. Now I want to try it. I just, uh, I published the book, uh, for sheer luck, I think in 21 languages. Uh, latest ones were Hebrew and Chinese, which were really hard because the books read from uh, right to left and back to front. So mm. publishing the books and laying them out was crazy. Oh, in Japanese, I did a new one in Japanese for uh, uh, The Invisible Man for it. But uh, I, I, I want to try being able to do it with those books. And I don't read Hebrew or Japanese. But I love the idea of being able to say, uh, I can't read it, but I can translate it. And then holding up a book in Hebrew and then reading whatever page they say. And then, of course, showing my book blank. I think it'll be right. really fun. That'd be cool. That'd be that really cool. That person reading in Hebrew will have to be translating in their head while they're going, yeah, wait, he's actually translating. How does he know that? Yeah. And then, and then you go anywhere in the world. Exactly. For With any language. That's Any language. And it'd That's be great good. that I'd have a little stack of books sitting there. Maybe uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The Invisible Man, uh, uh, The Time Machine, uh, Sherlock Holmes, and say, uh, they're all in different languages. Uh, are there people that speak different languages in the audience? Yes. Well, what, does somebody speak Hebrew, Japanese, Chinese, French, German? Which one? Great. Come up. Pick the book of that one because I, I can memorize it and I've translated <laughs> and then just go into it. Amazing. Amazing. What a great, yeah, I love that. To be able to go to any country, essentially, or eventually, because I'm sure you're going to go until you have all the languages. or Yeah, right. keep trying. There's Ooh. a lot out there. Oh, that's good. That's so good. In Bulgarian. That was so cool. Very rewarding for me. One magician wrote me in Bulgarian and said, uh, I know you'll never do one in Bulgarian. I'm wondering if, if I bought the one that's in English, would you help me to figure out? And I said, uh, Bulgarian? Yeah, I really like the magicians. There's a great group there, uh, the Quick Hands Project. They said, uh, give me a couple months. And a couple months later, I produced the book in Bulgarian. And he wrote me going, I can't believe it. He says, you know, you're going to have an audience of uh, like a, uh, uh, a market of one person. And I'm like, <laughs> good, I'm fine with that. He says, too much of work for one person to sell a book. I said, yeah, and I really don't make much money off of the vanity books, only off the English one. And then uh, lo and behold, I had, a, I had 10 orders from Bulgaria. The magicians all just bought it to say thank you, going, we never imagined a trick would be made outside of Bulgaria that was in Bulgarian, and we all want one. Wow. 
no, that was really, it was heartwarming to me, really cool to them. Uh, yeah. Yeah, see, that's, that's another thing. You, you keep adding to the magic community in all these different ways. That's, is, is that something that you've just always done? You've always had that, that mindset of helping? I wasn't part of the magic community when I was really young because my dad didn't. Uh, in 1979, I was introduced to the International Brotherhood of Magicians through Ring 183. Uh, at the time, it was just called the Victoria Magic Circle, later to be named the Ernie Crockford Ring after a really cool guy, Ernie, who I got to know really well, him and Anna. Uh, the magic ring brought me in. The Victoria Magic Circle brought me in like I was the young kid and helped me. Uh, people like Tony Yang and Jack Poulter John Gill and all these giants to me uh, took me under the wings, Carl Hemian, and they shared their ideas and they bought me lunches when I was starving. They bought me dinners, uh, housed me when I needed it. And I just always felt this need when I moved to Vancouver, I helped the magic community because the magic community had helped me. And it was just a local thing that became more provincial than the PCAM. And next thing I knew, I was running the Pacific Coast Association of Magicians and then uh, the CAM. Then, then I became president of the International Brotherhood of Magicians, regional vice president for the SAM. Uh, I, I'm the physical representative <laughs> for uh, the International Brotherhood of Magicians. Yeah, I, I just, uh, That's I don't know. I, I have trouble saying no. That's what it is. Okay. <laughs> I like helping. And if I got a skill that can help, and a little bit of time. I don't sleep, so I have lots of extra time. So I gave up sleep for Lent. Giving up Lent was hard. Giving up the sleep way easier. <laughs> oh, that's good. So <laughs> you say comedy is easy, but I don't know. I feel like that's just uh, ingrained in you. Were you? Were I, you, was there ever a time when you weren't? Funny? Oh yeah, I grew up unfunny. Uh, definitely. Uh, my brother was funny. Uh, my older brother, Scott, is hilarious. Uh, he's written scripts that have been published. He's, uh, he was an animator for years for Disney and for electronic arts and made video games. He's just funny. Walk into a room and he's the guy. Uh, he would take over a room and people would listen to his stories for hours. And I was the one who remembered bad jokes. Uh, but I went to comedy clubs, a lot of them, uh, as an opening act, the middle act, doing 10 minutes of magic just magic and trying to put a couple jokes in. And then, like I said, it started as a hack, listening to the hack jokes and putting those in. And then the comics were picking on me and saying, stop saying stupid lines, say something that's legit. And well, I don't have anything. Well then here's how you think and started writing. And half of it was, well, more than half of it was crap. Uh, but every once in a while there was a gem and I learned to write them down. And, uh, and then I learned that the quick wit isn't so much quick wit as in having them all retained in your head so that you can come back with the lines that are appropriate for the moment. And it just kept building. There was a point I was working for uh, uh, Comedy on the Road uh, where you worked in these bars all across Canada. Oh. And uh, it was always an opener, a middler and me. And then as the budget got tighter, it was just sort of a middler and me. And the middlers were not very good. Most of them were horrible. And it was like digging your way out of a comedy trench because they would just slowly lose the audience and they go, and here's your headliner. And you walk out and go, oh, I'm so sorry. And so I, I reached the point where I told the promoter, I, I just wanted to be me. And they said, well, you need 90 minutes. I don't have 90, but I've got 30 of jokes. I'll do an hour of the show. And afterwards, I'll play a game with the audience. And my game was uh, a chance to win my salary for the night. Oh. And it was basically... Uh, I would take 10 jokes. Uh, each person could raise their hand. They could only be one. 
person, one person, one joke. You couldn't ask a second joke, do another joke. The idea was they would tell a joke on a subject and I would have to follow it up with a joke on the same subject. And if my joke wasn't funnier than your joke, you got my paycheck. Oh, and, interesting. Uh, it got me funny and it got me a huge <laughs> notebook because every time I lost, I wrote that joke down. And even the jokes that didn't beat me, I wrote them down to be jokes that could be lower so that I could have my joke as a higher one because they got smarter over time. They would pick like uh, before the show, they, these tables would get together and talk. And then it was, we'll all do polar bear jokes. How many polar bear jokes can you have? And I would come back for my third week there and they were going, so this polar bear. And I'm like, okay, polar bear. I got a polar bear joke. And then the next guy go, so this polar bear. And I was like, Oh no. Okay. I got a polar bear joke. And then the fourth or fifth or sixth were going, I was like, you guys plan this. It's like, and once in a while I lost my salary, uh, but not very often. And I ended up with a lot of polar bear jokes or whatever the subject was. <laughs> oh geez. Yeah. No kidding. That would make you, that would quickly, quickly yeah. make you, you funny. Quite, quite a motivator, quite a motivator. Uh, not being able to eat for the next week. Yeah, <laughs> solid motivator. <laughs> so w where is this in your timeline, approximately? Well, that would have been the 90s. Um, about, uh, let's see, 83, I quit my job. 84, I was working at West Edmonton Mall. By 87, I got on ships, had a fire that I lost my home. 88, I got married. So maybe 90 to 91, 92, doing a lot of comedy clubs and uh, working all the dingy little bars, not comedy club. They put you in front of the dartboard. So you'd collect up everybody's darts. Um, or they, they, the only lit area was next to the pool table. So I did shows next to the pool table. And the first thing I learned was to take the eight ball and the cue ball. I put my dollar in, take the eight ball and cue ball and put them in my close-up case and go up and do my show. Because I didn't want guys getting bored and decide to play pool in the middle of my show. Oh, no. They would. Without <laughs> well, that's a doubt. <laughs> how I learned. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. I, I did a show once, uh, I think in Golden, BC. And they, they, the stage was right by the door. And then basically the bar was, it was all along. And then everyone seated was like down a skinny hallway and like super far away. And it's like, what am I supposed to do here? Is this the Golden Inn? I think so. Yeah. I think that's the one. run by two twin brothers who are really into Harley-Davidson bikes. <laughs> I remember the room. It was just this long little, it's like, hey, you people at the very back of the room. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I worked that with uh, a little entourage of magicians back in the day, and we changed our name. It was uh, Magicians and Comedians. Uh, and we changed our name while we were there because across the street, there's another bar, and that weekend they were having a college band group in called the Bare Naked Ladies. Oh, yeah. yeah, but they weren't famous. But the billboard said, tonight in our showroom, Bare Naked Ladies. And so everybody <laughs> thought everybody would go there to watch the strippers. And so we changed our name to Free Food and Beer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so when you drove into town, you looked over and you said, Free Food and Beer or Bare Naked Ladies. Well, we lost out. A lot of people went to watch the women. Uh, so we held our show for almost half an hour because the manager was like, the place is half empty. We thought we were going to do way better. And I, he said, uh, I said, give them a good half an hour because when, when they realize that there are no naked women and it's just going to be a bunch of guys with goatees playing music, 
they're all going to leave because it's not their style of music for Golden BC. <laughs> we oh. ended up with most of the people in our bar by the end of the night. Oh, nice. Wow. <laughs> what a great story. That's hilarious. Oh, free food and beer. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> I gave it to friends for a band back in uh, about 2006. My friend Kieran Buffery had a, a little band on the ship and they named it Free Food and Beer because they do sh- uh, shows in the crew bar. And if they said, you know, crew bar band playing tonight, nobody came. But if it right. said Free Food and Beer in the crew bar, people were like, yes. Then they got there and said, yeah, that's the name of the band. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. That's so good. Oh, Okay. What are some other places in Canada that you, that really stand out to you? Name a place. I'll tell you something. Name about. a place. Okay. Uh, Regina, Saskatchewan. Oh, Regina. I've done their, um, uh, uh, Billy something days. Um, oh. no, no, what's the name of their fair there? Um, I did their, yeah. uh, the fair there and the uh, RCMP have a museum in Regina, which is pretty cool. So I did a show in that as well. Um, what a Buffalo days. That's what it's called. Buffalo days in Regina. That's the name of it. Yeah. I worked that. Oh, that's funny. Um, back then I was called Farquhar and Felicity and, uh, oh. in the, in the little fair section, Felicity was Lori's uh, stage name. Uh, in the fair section, they had, you know, all the stuff you could buy the Ginsu knives and the uh, grinding up stuff. And, uh, there was a guy there that had a, uh, plotter and it would cut and make silk screens and things like that. And he was offering to, uh, heat, press onto jerseys and things your logo and so uh he did my Farquhar and Felicity logo and he charged me a dollar which was really great because I ordered 50 of them and I went in and picked up the first two and he said it was so intricate all the picking out and all the stuff he had to do that he wasn't doing anymore I could have the two for 50 bu- for the for the 50 bucks but no more and I was like but you said they were a dollar a piece I'm buying 50 he says that's it and I said but you can't charge me more for, for less. And he goes, okay, here's the other 48 bucks back. I'm just not doing them. So <laughs> ended up with just two of them. That was, that was fun. Farquhar and Felicity. That's her stage name. And yep. is that just so that you had the alliteration going? Yeah. Back a long time ago, uh, I wanted to be Lance Burton. I wanted to be Mandrake the magician. I wanted to be my dad. And, uh, uh, I love the, there was a, a couple that were pretty well known in BC that went by the names of Patterson and Pandora, John Patterson and his wife, Maureen, who went by Pandora. And they used it because Patterson was his name and Pandora sounded way better than Patterson and Maureen. It was right. Patterson and Pandora. And uh, they were heroes of mine. They, they ran the local magic shop. They were nominated multiple times for the Magic Castle uh, Magician of the Year. And then they basically packed up, moved to Japan to teach English, came back and uh, was an agent for a short time. I think he works for Lee Valley Hardware now. But uh, he was super great to me and was one of those guys. And I looked up to him and I thought, Farquhar and something. And uh, the girl I was dating at the time was Kirsten. And Farquhar and Kirsten didn't ring. And we pulled out a baby book and we just went through on girls' names. And Felicity came up and I went, ooh, that makes Farquhar sound French, not Scottish. Because Farquhar, as we're pronouncing it, is how I pronounce it. But if you go to Scotland, they pronounce it Farquhar which sounds like I'm picking a fight with you. <laughs> so, so Farquhar and Felicity. And so I went through, I think, three girls over a period of time that were all Felicity until I met my wife, Lori. And she was Felicity for years and years. And then one day we were on the ship and she just said, I think I'd like people to stop calling me Felicity. It was a great, great tool though. Uh, remember, we worked on the same ship for years 
and guests would come and leave and guests would come back. And it was hard to keep track of everybody who came back the second time, third and fourth, right. you got used to it. But the second time hard and people would walk up and they would just go, hello, Sean and Felicity. And we go, oh, hi, nice to see you. And that was it. But if they came up and went, hi, Sean and Lori, we go, oh no, we've met them before. Cause we'd always tell them, oh no, our real name is Lori. That was somebody we got to know. And so every once in a while people go, Lori, Sean. And we we're like, oh no, we know them. Start thinking and we work it out until somebody went, oh, it's Elaine. Nice to see you. I go, oh yeah, Elaine. <laughs> yeah. And then, then the transition period was rough. We were working on the Norwegian star. Uh, my daughter was probably about two, maybe three. And we were doing and the transition. You brought her with you? Oh yeah. Lori Hannah lived oh, wow. on board the ship. My daughter was uh, conceived on a ship, born on land, and then brought back to the ship where she lived until uh, she started school. Uh, she learned to walk and talk on a ship, uh, French, German, Spanish, Tagalog. Uh, yeah, she just did a lot. It was very cool. Uh, she was Wait, you said by... Tagalog? Why, why, why Filipino? Because there was tons of uh, Filipino crew members on board. And okay. we lived in the crew areas. And so she'd walk down the hallways looking at the people going, Kumastaka, Mabute. <laughs> Hey, people would cheer and laugh. It was very cool. Oh, um, amazing. Yeah. Just, I love just, it. Just, okay. part of, just part of growing up there. Um, yeah, uh, we, we, we reached that point where Lori wanted to be Lori. There I was, you know, in the show going, ladies and gentlemen, my lovely wife, Lori. Nice big round of applause. Two routines in, I'm all excited. And I go, now Felicity will step into the box. And people are like, who's Felicity? And then Lori would come out into the box. I was like, by the end of the show, I'd have some women angry at me going, guy's a two-timer. He's got two women on the go and he can't even keep track of it on stage. <laughs> oh, that's, that's That was that's about great. a year before that's I great. got over saying Felicity and anything. Now right. it feels weird saying it. It's like, it's like it was, that was a uh, different life. Yeah, a whole different life so many years ago. Oh, yeah, and I didn't, I wasn't me. I stood on stage with uh, trying to be suave and debonair with a really bad pencil-thin mustache and a top hat and a tuxedo. and. Uh, yeah, I look like Mandrake. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, when Mandrake passed away, one of the newspapers did a wonderful tribute on him, but one of the pictures in the tribute's me. Oh, <laughs> oh that's <laughs> how similar you were. Yeah, oh, I wanted to be like him. Mandrake was a very cool guy and was very special to us. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you, you grew out of that and then yeah. became your own entertainer, no, so I to speak? Or? or I was plunged out of it. I was working uh, on a ship, uh, the Norwegian Jewel. We were in Italy uh, doing wonderful cruises uh, through uh, uh, the Mediterranean. We stopped in uh, Sivacevecchia. It was our night off. Lori and I got on a train. We went into Rome. We ate copious amounts of pasta, drank red wine in the Tuscan sun, enjoyed ourselves immensely, walked the ruins, the Colosseum, the, did all that, the catacombs, got back on the train for the long ride back, totally lulled almost to sleep, arrived at the ship to the cruise director screaming, where the hell have you been? I'm like, what? You're on. I'm like, no, it's not my day. It's Attaboy Dave, the juggler. And he goes, Attaboy tripped. He broke, I think he broke his arm. Uh, may have sprained it, but his arm was hurt and he couldn't perform. And I was doing a show, he told me. And I'm like, I can't do a show. He said, Why? I said, I'm drunk. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I went out and did a show. Uh, I'd love to say it went well, but I, I, I want to lie to you. Uh, <laughs> it, I was about halfway through the show, lost most of the audience. There were some people sleeping because they drank as much as I did. Uh, and I wasn't doing a very good job. And I just stopped. 
and talked to the audience and said, if my grandfather could see me now, he'd be turning over in his grave. And guy in the front said, why? And I said, well, my grandfather was a magician. And not really doing it. Your grandpa was a magician? All of a sudden, I'm having a conversation with the audience. Um, and I was me. I wasn't this persona. I dropped all character and just talked like I was me, like this. And then uh, I said, you want to see a trick I can't screw up? And ran off stage and got one. My wife's looking at me going, what are you doing? I said, I'm improvising. I did the trick. The audience liked it. I pulled another trick out. I started doing some stuff that was just me. And uh, yeah, I've been like 95, late 95, because uh, I did it and it, uh, they leapt to their feet. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't like, you know, a nice standing ovation that polite, they were like a leaping ovation. And I went to the back of the theater to say goodbye to the people. And, you know, one out of every five or six people would always say, nice job. A couple of people, everybody, without a doubt, everybody shook my hand. Some of them hugged me. Uh, little old ladies kissed my forehead, all going, your grandpa would be proud of you. And it was like wow. really different. And nobody said the box was cool. The cage was cool. The big parrot was cool. None of that. It was all, your grandpa would be good. Wow, you're really cool. I like you. It was all personal. Uh, I had two shows to do that night. I was pretty sober. For, I think the first show, they all came up because they wanted to smell my breath to see if I really was as drunk as I said I was. Uh, <laughs> second show, I was a lot more sober and I tried to do what I did in the first show and I Hollywooded it up some and I sucked. And I was about halfway through the show when I just broke down and started being me again and it worked. And it took about a couple months of doing shows constantly on the ship to get to the point where I was just coming out and talking to the audience and keeping my energy up and eating the energy off of them and just being me. And there's advantages and disadvantages. The advantage is if you're a character and somebody doesn't like you, well, screw them. It's a character. Life goes on. If it's you on stage and somebody doesn't like you, it really hurts because it's like somebody coming up to you and going, uh, I don't like you. For any other reason, then I don't like you. And there's nothing you can do to change who you are. The character, if they said, you know, wow, your character is snobbish or your character's weird, you can adjust your character. Right. You can't adjust who you are. You can try. Uh, I know lots of people who try and put on fake versions of who they are, but, uh, but you can see that. So, right. yeah, it's a good and bad thing. I became me, yeah, early 95. And what a great way, too, to, you know, you, you became you and then had such an amazing response to it to gen, then just solidify in your mind that like, this is the, the right, right move. move. Yeah. yeah. Just the other day I did a talk for the Lance Burton team seminar and I'm talking like this. And in the comments, so one of the kids said, that guy talks way too fast. Is he like on speed? And I'm like, nope, just on me. But I get it. Now I laugh, you know, that doesn't hurt. I know I talk too fast, but it's because I get excited because mm -hmm. I've got a lot to say. It's stuck in my head and I want to share. And that's good too. It, it keeps people's attention at all times. Yeah. Is that how you've always presented is, uh, and performed? In the nineties? No, slow, precise, deep in the heart of the jungles of India. I came up with, and I'm like, I wonder if there's jungles in India. Well, that's what I wrote. No, I was, I was, yeah. You look at my early stuff. Uh, my really early stuff, I did this with my glasses a lot, waving them in the air because I wanted to be Kreskin, you know, so you take them off and wave them to bite the corner. Yep. Uh, so that was Kreskin because that was my first exposure to any magic. Then Dale Harney's Magic Palace came on and I got to see all these other. I was kind of Paul Harris. And then uh, Lance, well, Channing Pollock came along. I saw Channing and then Lance. 
And then after Lance, I met Mandrake and it was like, wow. And uh, yeah, it Amazing. wasn't always that way. And it took some time to be more and more comfortable on stage and to be able to tell real stories instead of fake stories and uh, share moments instead of just do a trick. Uh, right. I still do some just tricks and some of my stories aren't real. Uh, I, they do uh, the five card repeat by Bill Abbott. I talk about my uncle Bill Abbott. Uh, <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> I think it's fun. It's down on Abbott street. Anyways. <laughs> <just move along. laughs> and the audience doesn't know, but they it, don't know. it's just like you'll a nod to magicians. You're like, there's a magician in the crowd. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. That's, I love that you you've yeah. added yeah that's a whole, do, uh, whole other I, level. <laughs> I do a tip over trunk. Well, I used to do a tip over trunk. Murray Hatfield and Teresa have it now for Carson, their son. But uh, I used to make my daughter a pair out of a tip over trunk, an old one, and it was a old German steamer trunk that I got at an antique store because the trunk I had when I was young that my dad gave me is not going to be cut up and made into a magic trick. But but the one that I bought, I can cut up, make it do a magic trick. And I talk about how my brother and I each had our trunks and anything we can pack in it, we got to keep. And I thought, that doesn't have a lot of relevance to anything. I want to make it funny and I want to be educational. And so I wrote a joke that I said, everything we got to put in the trunk, we got to keep. Anything that we couldn't, we had to leave behind. My dad called that pack small, play big, which makes magicians go, ah. And layout, it just go, well, that's interesting. Yeah. And so when I say that line in the show, and I'd say, my dad called it pack small, play big, you'd hear a couple of people laugh. And I'm going, I got magicians in the house tonight. That's awesome. I throw Ooh. a couple more magician jokes in just for them to laugh. <laughs> oh, I, I love too the, I believe recently, I don't know if it's recent, but you, you have this whole new line of uh, using the, the chaste yeah, chase wording new. in a, uh, in a different a, way. I just myself a coffee mug, which is really nice. And uh, um, I've always liked chase. I thought it was cool. And one day when I was thinking about the word chase, I was like, I want something that's just for magicians. And so with chase and my dream underneath of it, lay people just see the word my dream, which is great because it's still inspire, inspiring to them. But chase for magicians look at it and they go, oh, that's so good. And the t-shirt design has a, a joker sitting uh, on the end. And in the joker, I put a playing card so I can do magic tricks with it and end up showing the revelation of the card in the joker's hand. Awesome. Yeah. That's and awesome. And I have one that says, uh, <laughs> don't run when you're not being, and then the right. heart spades and diamonds. They're doing really well too. Uh, I, I, didn't, I didn't mark them up a huge. I put them on Teespring because uh, I wanted them to be out there for people to have. And I'm so thrilled to see so many people buying it and wearing them. And I make a couple dollars off each one. It's never going to make me rich, but it makes me happy to see everybody wearing them. Oh, yeah. It's yours? great. I think How's magicians, we need you? more stuff like that. That's that's awesome. Just I created Magician You, which I love too, because I got sick and tired of the amount of people that said, oh, you should. I bet you went to Hogwarts. And it was like, no, those are wizards. I'm a magician. Big difference. And so I created a website called Magician U and then made logos and everything. So it looks like Michigan University, but it says magician with a U on it. Okay. And <laughs> I love it because I walk around my sweatshirt. And I think I'm going to get ones that have track team, but it's just going to say trick team. Hey, ah, ha, ha. I like that. The amount, yep. the amount of people yep. that don't see the word magician. I saw a guy from Ohio. He had on a red jersey that said Buckeye. He comes over and said, so I guess we got to be mortal enemies. And I said, why is that? He said, I'm a Buckeye. And I said, and I'm? And he goes, well, you're obviously a big fan of Michigan. And I looked at him and I said, wow, is that how they taught you to read it? 
Ohio University. And he was like, oh, geez, that says magician. And I was like, yep. We just immediately read it. I said, yep, assumptions. That's what magicians do. We fool people with assumptions. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Uh, I, like, I like my little caption. It says, uh, not all magicians went to Hogwarts. I love it too. And yeah, you've cool. also... Yeah, just going through, you, you're doing all these different things. And recently, uh, you created a theater. Can, can you tell me more about that? I yeah, I created my own theater space because I wanted to get off the road. I've been on cruise ships for more than 30 years. I've traveled and performed in theaters and casinos, lectured in nightclubs, done everything. I ever trade shows, kids' birthday parties, you name it, I've done it. And I've always had a dream of having my own theater. When it started, I wanted like, you know, a 500-seat theater to do my stage show. But as the years have progressed, I've really gravitated towards sleight of hand and parlor style magic. And so I, uh, in September, 2019, I said to my wife, I think I'm just gonna quit. Uh, I didn't renew a contract with Disney Cruise Lines who I'd been working for for the last seven years. I just said, I'm gonna lease a space and try. So I subleased a spot in uh, Chinatown in Vancouver and I made it look like a Chinese tailor shop in the front so that people wouldn't even know it was there. And you had to go through the dressing room to get to the theater in the back. What? And the only way to buy a ticket was online. And the only way to find out where the theater was, was once you bought a ticket. Once you had a ticket, then you got to find out where the venue was. Then you met Billy Sway, who helps me and is a student of mine in magic. He would invite them in, ask them to check out the change room. They go in the change room and come out in this little 30 seat Victorian style theater with red curtains and black curtains and gold braids. and put little red seats on three levels, only 10 people per row and elevated at 18 inches and 36 so everybody can see over each other. And uh, I got to learn everybody's name, 30 people's names. I was selling out every single night, months in advance. When, when we had to close on March 15th, I had two months worth of sold out shows and really awesome. Uh, less than 30% asked for refunds. The rest of them are holding on tickets from when I opened. And I've got such cool news because while COVID was closed, the person I was leasing from gave up their lease on the building. And so then I went to the owner and asked if I could lease the building. They said, yes, they agreed to a fee that was less than I was paying before. Uh, I was all excited. And then the city of Vancouver said, well, if you're the new lease owner, you need to upgrade it to meet all the code standards, uh, which was a sprinkler system that was more than $30,000. And so sadly I lost the property. Uh, and I went into a real funk for about uh, 24 hours. And in that 24 hours, my knight in shining armor, my wife, Lori, uh, found a place. I'd found three places going through while looking. A friend of mine, Rod Chow, is a great space, but it was on the third floor and wasn't handicapped accessible, so the city wouldn't let me use it. Found a tattoo parlor, but you couldn't have it on the main floor in that area. And then I couldn't have the one we originally had. And so we moved out of Vancouver because Vancouver really doesn't want performing arts. They say they do, but I really don't think they do. They put everything roadblocks to, to it's really sad, but they, they basically drove me out. Uh, but I went to New Westminster. Lori found a listing in New Westminster, BC, which is half the distance from where I live to Vancouver. Uh, so it's central, it's central to everything. It is basically the center of the lower mainland of British Columbia. Uh, and it's in an old historic building from 1898. Uh, the ceilings are 11 and a half feet tall, so I can put in my theater lighting and my rake seating, and uh, it's twice as big. I had only 700 square feet, now I've got over 1,540. Uh, the front store area is going to be even cooler. I'm going to have a lounge area and a showroom. 
very excited. Oh, uh, yeah. That's and, awesome. And, and the city uh, welcomed me with open arms, gave me the zoning for theater. Uh, when I told them, you know, I needed to have inspectors come sooner than six weeks, they came three days later and did a full inspection. They were really good to me, told me the plumbing I need to fix, the electrical, the fire suppression stuff, and I've done it all, and they've removed all the discrepancies, and I'm just waiting on my business license, and then I'm going to start installing everything into it. I'm going to produce Hidden Wonders is the greatest joy I've ever had because I designed the show to be different every night. No two shows are the same. I only know the opening of the show. And after that, the show is up to the spectators. The spectators decide the show. I have uh, a cabinet full of curious items, multiple shelves. And on every shelf, there's multiple items. But you only get to pick one item per shelf. So the rest of the stuff on that shelf is dead for the night. I also have a box filled with wonder, a wonderful little curious box. And people have stuff on them. And so I tell them, you can pick something from the cabinet. You can tell me to pick something from the box. Or you could give me something from you and I'll do magic with it. And so, so the cool. show is different every single night because they pick different things, different order, different everything. In the six months that I was open, I didn't do two shows the same. It wow. was awesome and learning for me because sometimes the audience picks all the really high impact in a row tricks and I can't have up, 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 up. That's not good for a show. You have to have peaks and valleys. And so I have to take a great trick and make it less. And sometimes I pick less, 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 and I take a less trick and make it great. And wow. Really um, artistically exciting for me, uh, challenging. Uh, and just, yeah, it's my passion right now. I just wow. I love it. Uh, the entire feeling. Right down to right now, I'm trying to figure out what we want to make the front of the store look like this time. Before mm -hmm. it was a, a fake tailor and it had uh, uh, Chinese symbols across the top with the word in English tailor underneath. And people just walked right by it. Unless you looked at it for a while and you realized they weren't Chinese symbols. It was just the word fake drawn in brush strokes to look like Chinese symbols. <laughs> wow. Oh, Which that's so, awesome so even awesome. the audiences that came didn't know. And I say, when you leave, take a look at the sign again. They go, oh my God, it says fake. <laughs> you could have some sort of revelation intertwined too, I'm sure, oh, into that. Oh. The stuff when they come through in through uh, the old one, when they came in through the uh, Chinese tailor shop, it was telling them all of the effects that were in the show without them knowing. So as they left, they're going, oh, look, there was that thing. Oh, look, there was that thing. So they're all built in as uh, if I learned anything from my seven years working for Disney is it's in the details, little tiny things that really make the difference. And right. so I want it to be an immersive experience. The audiences will come to New Westminster to this historic building with these big windows and an arched doorway. They'll come in, they'll have to find the entrance into the lounge from the lounge. They still have to find the entrance into the showroom. It's going to be fun. Oh, that's so cool. It's like, it's like elements of a, an escape room and then just, an incredible magical experience all the way from the moment they get the ticket pretty much. The second they walk from the second they purchase their ticket, they still have to figure out where they're going. Oh yeah. here. And and when they see it, it's not going to be that. Yeah. That's so cool. I love that. I love that a lot. I I'm excited. Did It'll you be interesting to see what I do during the COVID time? Uh I I want to open soft. Uh the room, uh, according to the building code, will allow 60 people. But to the fire code, it'll allow 30 people. And to my moral code, I'm probably going to allow 14 people. Right. And because <laughs> so I, I think that... Really the far. 
Um, I just bought a bunch of tables and I'm making that. Well, I bought table bases, but I'm making the table tops and they'll have the Hidden Wonders logos in them. And I'm going to lacquer them so that I can clean them easily. And I'm going to spread these seven tables out so that they're more than six feet apart so that they're in small little pods all over. And I think uh, I've been looking for uh, a big stand like they have for like uh, chalkboards that when they roll the chalkboard or whiteboard in, right. I'm going to replace the whiteboard with a sheet of plexi in it uh, so that I will walk out behind it and say, this is for your protection, not from COVID. I just spit a lot when I talk. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> and then nice. I will use the plate of glass to write on, to put predictions, uh, to do all sorts of things with, so that it doesn't feel like a barrier as much as an element of the show. Right. What, yeah. I like that. Yeah. What other types of things are you going to have to change? Because if it's uh, audience interaction... Audience interaction with no contact. Uh, At each of the tables uh, will be paper bags. Uh, Everything in the paper bag will be sanitized before the show. And the audience will have the choice of whether or not to use it or not. So uh, instead of picking from the cabinet the item, they will, in the beginning, they'll be picking either something from them, which they use it, and I'll do magic. An example would be, they say, pick something from me. I'll say, well, uh, let's use your uh, cell phone. And we'll do something fun. And I'll do a magic trick with the cell phone. If they say something in the box, I take something from the box and do it. And if they say something uh, from the paper bag, I'll say, well, then open your paper bag and let's see what's in yours. It's a mystery today. And we'll do whatever's in there. And it can be as simple as, uh, well, Rubik's Cubes are really easy to clean. So a perfect example is a Rubik's Cube. There could be a cube in there. They take it out. I ask them to mix it up. And then I look at theirs. And then I pick a Rubik's Cube out of my box. And right in front of them, I mix mine so they match perfectly. What a cool idea. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have I have a ton of ideas. Um, I have a lot of magic. Almost all my magic is interactive touch and be with the people. Things like my book test, standing back to back. Can't do that. So I'm working out new ideas on how to do a book test where they don't have to touch me. Have and the plexiglass right between you? Yeah. We could slide that panel, turn sideways. We're going to stand, connect to each other, and yet still be apart. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, you just have to be more creative yeah. to, to make it work. Hey, I think that when people ask me what the best, what the biggest requirement for being a magician is, not an entertainer, magician, because there is a difference. There's lots of people who are magicians who aren't entertainers, and lots of entertainers who aren't magicians. But to be a good magician, you have to be a problem solver. Uh, we we're all trapped on the ground yet somehow a magician figured out how to float. He solved the problem. You can't get from here to there. So we find a way to penetrate through it. Uh, the card is lost in the deck and we find it. These are all problem solving. That's what we do. And we problem solve in ways that look miraculous, but it's still just problem solving. So I see a problem. I have to do a show which feels interactive without contacting. What do I do? How can I make it happen? Right. It's kind of exciting. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I'm excited for you. And I, yeah. I can't wait to see how how things go forward. And as the world where opens up, this is going to be amazing because people need to be entertained. They're and, crying out for yeah. it. Already I, I've got dozens and dozens of emails with people going, uh, will you be opening? Uh, is there a chance that my family or a family and my friends, which is like, you know, a small bubble of 12, we get together all the time could we somehow hire you? We can't afford the, you know, those corporate rates. And I'm like, I'm reaching the point corporate rates are not that important as much as I just want to be in front of some people and perform, but I want to do it in a safe way. 
And if the safe way is me behind a piece of glass while 14 people who know each other are having a good time, that's awesome. And if it's 14 people who don't know each other, I want to make sure they're spread out and safe too. Right, right, yeah. right, right. It's good times to bad times. So weird. But uh, step and, up to the challenge. And you said that you you quit all your other gigs for just the theater. Yep. That's amazing. Just packed it in. Always had a dream of doing it. Um, in for a penny, in for a pound. You're going to mm-hmm. do it. Anything worth doing is worth overdoing. That's my right. theory. Uh, I cut all the wood, uh, uh, painted the flats. My wife sewed the curtains. I made the banners. It, it's, it's, I didn't just buy some stuff. I put blood, sweat, and tear into it to make it happen. Uh, How much and, more satisfying is it oh, for, the, it, for this? It's impossible to describe. Do you know, uh, I've always loved performing, and I feel most comfortable on a stage. Uh, but when I had to fly for 14 hours to get to the gig, uh, sleep in a hotel, uh, maybe talk to a technical crew that uh, English wasn't their first language, and foolish me, uh, I'm in Russia trying to go, they're like, yeah, excellent, no, no English, good. And then trying to explain the show to them, and then the fear that goes with, not knowing if your technical crew is going to be able to do the show. And then if the audience is going to relate to you because they're Russian and you're English or they're Chinese and you're English or they're uh, from the South and you're not. I mean, there are so many variables that come into when you perform that can affect you to just uh, the uh, Kevin Costner line, you know, build it and they will come. I, I arrived at the theater. I knew everything where it was. A reset took 15 minutes. I relaxed backstage, cracked a bottle of water, walked out, spilled my soul for 75, 80 minutes, walked off the stage to the love of 30 people, the smallest audiences I've ever performed for in my life, and uh, never felt more rewarded. In fact, I said they all sold out, and that's not true. I did a show on a Sunday for five people. We blocked off the gallery, and I just moved five chairs down around the table and I said, we're doing the show. And Billy and Lori were like, Lori decided not to come. She said, I don't want to be half of the audience. This is like, yeah, she says, just you and Billy. And Billy's like, you're really doing this? I said, yeah. He goes, that's so admirable. I'm like, they bought tickets. This is part of what they wanted to do today. When they arrive and they see there's only five people, they're going to feel that they're, they booked the wrong ticket. <laughs> At the end, uh, the, the five people, two were from uh, England. Uh, a guy and a girl, the girl was from Australia and the guy was from America and there was one single girl, she was from Australia. And uh, I realized why nobody came. It was Super Bowl Sunday. Oh. I booked a ticket, a a show (laughs) performed as a Sunday matinee on Super Bowl Sunday. It gets funnier. I had a show the next week for 12 people. That would be the Academy Awards. So... (laughs) I've learned to actually look at the calendar and see what's coming up, what's inc- incredibly important, and what doesn't matter. Apparently, the Super Bowl is a thing. <laughs> yeah. It's a big piece to come compete against. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, Sean, can you, can you maybe share with us the, the biggest lesson that magic has taught you and has helped you in your, your day-to-day life as a as a human? Yeah. Um, I learned it from my mentor, Jerry Andrews. Uh, Perception is reality. 
what people perceive, they will believe. If you uh, want to succeed, if you want to be happy, then act happy. If you want to be successful, act successful. Do the things that successful people do. Uh, if you, it's an illusion. Magic is showing one thing while something else is going on. But when it's done, the only magic that really happens takes place in your own head. What we do is the trick. The audience makes it magic. And so if you want a better life, uh, have a better life. Start with the illusion and slowly you'll accept it. And it will become your reality. Whatever you perceive will be real and it will become who you are. Uh, I, I was eating ketchup packages in the basement suite of a rundown, horrible building that filled with sewage water in 1984. Uh, and uh, now I live in a beautiful house uh, surrounded by my beautiful family doing all I love because I perceived it, I believed it, and I didn't give up. And so perception is reality. I love it. You made it. You you made it your reality. Yeah, I did. That's amazing. Yes. Mindset, how important is that to you? It's everything. Uh, positive energy. I am the eternal optimist. I remember in 88 when uh, I lost my apartment to a fire and the uh, newscasters were there shoving cameras and microphones in my face going, well, you've lost everything. How do you feel? And I looked at the guy and said, it's going to be the easiest move I've ever had. <laughs> you know, um, anybody can say, why me? And look to the terrible side. Uh, instead, find the positive. There's always something positive. And I've always tried to be positive. I'm, I'm not always positive. I say I try to be. I have my down days. Uh, God, during COVID, I've had several of them. Uh, when I lost the building, uh, those moments, and they're hard. Uh, but having the right mindset, going into it with the right attitude is everything. Uh, when you go out to do a show, I see performers that, uh, I, I know performers are going to say, I don't get nervous before a show. And I said, well, then you really don't care about your audience. I, I always have this, this uneasy tension. Are they going to like me? Uh, am I going to entertain them? And, but once the show starts and I see that they like me, I just relax. But that's the positive energy of I'm going in there. I'm going to give them the best thing. And I'm afraid that I won't give them my best. And that makes me give more. There are people that go in with a negative attitude. Oh, this audience sucks. And I heard them with the first group. I have the experience of in Busan, Korea. Uh, they did nights of galas. And I flew in the day before my gala. And the producer said, you can watch the show. And I was sitting with my friend Johan up in the booth uh, in the bleachers watching in this big arena and this act came out a friend of mine from france and did an act the end of his act was tearing open his shirt uh Mikhail, and he shows a south korean flag and as he showed the flag the audience went into a standing ovation that lasted minutes not not a minute minutes like it stopped the show clapping and cheering clapping and cheering as he showed the flag and i looked over at Johan and i said i really feel sorry for the guy that has to follow him because that's that's an impossible follow and it was uh, a brilliant magician who came out and did a good job. But, but it was hard. It was really hard for him. And it was nowhere near the show he could have done just because of where he was in the show. So uh, when the show was over, I went back to meet the producer. And he said, yeah, now these three acts are leaving. And you're going into this position. 
And I was going into the position following the guy with the South Korean flag. And I remember looking at him going, you don't like me? You hate me? Why do you hate me? <laughs> like, and I tried to convince the producer to move me to a different spot. Uh, Young and Young, this uh, wonderful uh, duo from Germany were on the show. They were doing a, a Gentleman in New York song from Sting. And I was doing Shape My Heart. And I'm like, we can switch places. We're both Sting numbers. And they're like, yeah, we're good where we are. And I'm like, no, 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 please. they're <laughs> going, if it makes Sean happy, we will. I'm like, wow, I love you guys. And then the producer said, no, I'm the producer. You stay where you are. And so uh, the next day came and I came with a real negative attitude of I'm going to suck. This is going to be horrible. I didn't even put gel in my hair that day. I just, I, I remember walking out uh, an all Korean audience and going, Anyang Haseo, which is like, thank you. <laughs> you know, no, I think Anyang Haseo is hello. And uh, they, them all kind of clapping at me saying, come some nida. Yeah, thank you. And then I sat down and I said, so how many of you speak English? Make some noise. And there was almost no noise. I went, okay, let's just get this over with. <laughs> and I said, here's a card trick. I hope you like it. And I started. And I can tell you I didn't have my soul in it. And the music began. I started to feel the music. I started to begin the card trick. And uh, suddenly I could hear the audience. And they were singing in English the lyrics to the song. And it got louder and louder as I was performing. And my energy got more and more. And my attitude went from screw this to, oh, my God, I was failing them. I, I got to step up my game. And it became smoother and moving. And, and it was, yeah, it was tremendous. And I, I followed a three and a half minute standing ovation with another standing ovation from the audience because they, thank God, they love me. Um, I came off the stage and the producer said, see, I told you it would be perfect. And I said, how did they even know the song? At which point he told me that uh, a very famous magician, Yuhu Jin, and a famous K-pop artist, two weeks before, had taken the song and done it together uh, as a magic trick, as a tribute to me coming to town. And Yuhu Jin did cards while the pop singer sang the song. So everybody in Korea knew it because it had millions and millions of hits on their Yuku, their version of YouTube. Like, you could have told me that so that I knew that. They <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I went in with a bad attitude, and it still came out positive. I can't imagine how great it would have been if I'd gone in with a more positive attitude off the top and not robbed them of the opening. Right. That was kind of selfish of me. Interesting. Yeah, you, yeah, you robbed them of the experience yeah. because of how you how I had a preconceived notion of it. Yeah. You I gave up before it started. I was already defeated before the battle began. Yeah. But then... It's, and you noticed halfway through, you brought it back and still rocked it. Yeah. That's nice work. That was them. I like that. I just followed their wave. They created mm -hmm. their own wave, and I just jumped on it and went for the ride. Mm -hmm. And that was part of reading the, the energy of the crowd. Yeah. Always be in tune with them. I think that's a really important thing to learn as a magician. Um, I learned that from comics. Comics always put a tape recorder. Uh, they used to put their tape recorder on the stool and do their act. And then they'd listen to where the laughs were. And they'd listen where the weren't laughs. And they built the show stronger. Johnny Thompson knew every laugh in his bird act. And he, he, he knew every laugh and where they were. And he recorded and listened to make sure. And if it didn't get it, he wanted to know why it was different. Uh, I've recorded every single one of my Hidden Wonders shows. Uh, and I watched them to see where the highs are, where the lows are, how I can make a trick stronger, how I can make a trick weaker, what will make it better, what will make it, you know, 
uh, more memorable. It's, it's a really fun process. I've created so much magic. Uh, I've, I've got 30 some new effects uh, just from having my own space uh, wow. because I can create in that space and I've got a great sounding board. Billy Shway is really awesome. Uh, Alexander, who's the current president of the IBM, another person who was my student for years. And I raised them right. I raised them the way they, my dad raised me to have bits. And they've had great mentors like Steve Dixon, who really taught them fundamentals. And because of those guys, I've got good sounding boards that I can say, what about this? And they go, that sucks. This is a better idea, Sean. And they'll help me. And what do you mean by like, sounding boards? Uh, I throw stuff off of them and listen to what it sounds like. And they come back with what they think it is. I see. I see. I see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. They're like human mirrors. Yes. Yeah. They talk so. to you though. And, and they don't hide it. Nothing, you, nothing is worse than surrounding yourself with people that just tell you what you already think. Right. Yeah. You need Finding the, the truth. Who think like you who can give you the truth because sometimes you'll lie to yourself and say, Oh, that one looks okay. I read a great uh, page in a book recently from the fifties about the vanishing birdcage. And the gentleman was saying that nobody does the vanishing birdcage well, that almost all magicians perform it blink the moment the cage disappears. And the reason they blink is because even they don't want to see it. <laughs> and that's sort of lying to yourself by going, if I blink at the same time, and I have a terrible habit. If you want to want to catch my outs uh, when I'm videotaping myself, watch for the blink moments because that's when I'm doing something that I think the audience might catch. I'm really right. stressing now, keeping my eyes open. And when I make a video, I try not to do a selfie style so that I don't watch me while I'm doing it. Right. Yeah. You're looking at the lens. Yeah. More so. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. I, I never really knew that was a thing. I just remember looking at myself in the mirror, but then making it invisible for myself. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the problem with a mirror is that you want to make it invisible and it's lying to you because the mirror is twice the distance. As a kid, I grew up with a mirror. That's all we had. I practiced in front of a mirror. Uh, when I had my first apartment, I got one with sliding glass doors that were huge because at nighttime when it got dark, I had a full-size mirror. I used to practice the bird act. Lori <laughs> and I would do the whole Park Publicity bird act, and all of a sudden we'd hear like applause, and we'd look out, and our neighbors would come out and sit to watch the show because they do. Oh, wow. We're going to make Sean practice around 8 o'clock. We'll come out and watch them do the act. Oh, that's cute. That's awesome. So what's better than a mirror? Camera. Yep. Camera that doesn't have a uh, monitor. Mm. And three cameras. Better than one. Put one center, one to each side. Uh, make sure the monitors are closed. And do the act as if that's point A is straight ahead, B and C. Focus mainly on A. Don't forget about B and don't forget about C. Do your act to the camera uh, and look up a little bit to make sure you get the balcony and do your act. And then later review it because only then you will see exactly what they saw not what you want to see while you're watching you do magic interesting i like that yes yeah. what a better way to practice what a hard way to practice but so much better yeah because it'll be hard for you to go i wonder if they can see that but no you already know if you can see it they can't if you cover this then that's good but i see so many that are watching the screen while they're doing it and you're like yeah and I fail sometimes. I, I'm not perfect. Uh, but when I'm practicing something new, I put a camera, close the monitor, and then I just do the trick. And then I go back and review it and go, okay, I got to change that, write the notes, and then do it again. And just keep doing it over and over and be your own best critic. And then get a few 
people who have a critical eye to watch it who aren't just going to say, well, that was fantastic. Right. And then yep. post it on YouTube and wait for all the comments. <laughs> I can see how he does it because that's so done. But yeah. And, and, and what's great is that I, I read all the YouTube comments lately. I used to not, but lately I've been reading them because they give me new ideas on how to do the trick. Usually they're mm. worse ideas, but it's fun to look at them because you go, oh, I never thought about using that idea. Maybe I could build that into something. And then that could lead to another idea. New idea. Absolutely. Interesting. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. So that actually, the YouTube thing actually brings me to another uh, topic I'd like to talk to you about. And that's, I recently watched, because there, there's a magician, he reacts to other magicians. Oh yeah, Jason Parker. Yeah. And I love his reactions. He, it, he gives great insight and it's just overall fun experience. He reacted to one of your your most recent appearance on Fool Us. And then you reacted to his reaction. And I just thought that was amazing that you would do something like that. And just, I just want to say that like that, that blew, that blew my mind that you would do that. But now further to that, I I'm kind of getting the impression that you did fool them, but maybe didn't get credit for fooling them. Um, so let's talk about the reaction part instead. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I, I hadn't heard of Jason. Thought he was, I somebody said, "Hey, you got to watch this." I got about ten people that sent me messages on all different platforms, and I was like, "What are these things?" So I watched another reaction thing and went, "Oh, this is cool." Uh, so then I set up all my stuff, bought a piece of software, and uh, and said, "I'm going to react to him." What's really cool is he's already done a video reacting to me, reacting to him, reacting to me. <laughs> and it's been up for about three days and I plan on making a reaction video to him reacting to me, reacting to him, reacting to me. So we're going to see how uh, far this can go down the rabbit hole. Um, reaction yeah. inception. I uh, love the it. idea of reacting videos is kind of foreign to me, but uh, I've since talked to Jason. We talked yesterday. He asked if we could have a little chat and we did and it was wonderful. And he's a very positive guy with a really great attitude. And uh, we had a little jam session and worked on some magic, but it was really cool. Uh, so I wish them all the best. I think it's a really cool idea. And I'm amazed at how many people have watched the reacting of reacting of reacting videos. So I hope that'll go further. As to the uh, fooling them, uh, I never went on the show the first time to fool them. Uh, there was no trophy when I went on the show the first time. Trophies didn't come till uh, the show came to America. Um, so I didn't go on the show to, to win a trophy the first time. I didn't the second time. I didn't the third time. Uh, third time, I didn't even, uh, I actually turned them down a lot of times. You can ask the producers. I pitched the best idea ever, and they turned me down. Uh, I had the best idea for, for TV and for Fool Us that would be killer, and they just uh, didn't see it. But they had this theory that they were going to do an all Fool Us show. And they needed four of them, and Shin Lemon turned them down. And I said, well, all you need is Vinnie Grasso. You got enough. And then... Uh, they didn't, when they first started pitching to me, Helen hadn't got her second fool. And I was going, uh, I guess you need both. They're going, well, they, I didn't know Helen had got it. And they said, actually, we have another fooler coming up. And I said, oh, that's awesome. And then Andre, and it was like, well, then you have enough. And then uh, Vinny declined. And it came down to, they, they only had three. And they kept bugging me. In January, at the SAM convention, they were like, so what are you going to do? And I just, I don't have anything. I got this idea, but I don't think it's very good. And I got that idea. And it's not, well, just send us stuff. And I said, I don't have anything to send you. And it was just, 
Uh, and then about <laughs> three or four weeks, they, they were like, we'll have you on the show. Just bring something. And it was like, what? Yeah. They just, they needed four to make a show. And hmm. Paul Gertner had talked to me. I'd helped Paul with some of the ideas on his thing, helped him to find the Sharpies he needed. And uh, uh, he really wanted to do it because uh, he said it gave a really great bump to his show, Miracles and Deception. And it would do a real big bump for Hidden Wonders too. And I was like, I'm selling out. I don't really need, he's like, yeah, but it'll help. And it was like, I felt I could go on. And uh, I came up with a trick about three weeks beforehand. I changed it, the method almost every day. In fact, I changed the method the night before uh, it filmed. And you can see it. Uh, when I have the open deck of cards and I shake out a playing card and I ask her what her card is, uh, the reason I'm asking is because I was going to reveal it was her card, whatever the card is. Uh, but then I remembered I switched it and was going to have the card in the book because I switched it. And so when I said, what was the name of your card? I went, oh, and saw his joke. I said, never mind. It's a joker. And my head went, jokers are wild. And Oh crap, I almost blew my own trick right there on television. Uh, so yeah, I was still changing it. Uh, I reviewed all the videos because I did the, I did the show, that trick, every night at Hidden Wonders uh, for about a week. So I've got like uh, eight tapes with eight different presentations because I changed it in every one of them going, oh, that'll be better. I'll change that. At one point, I had the selected card in the box with the paper wrapped around it so that when they open the deck of cards, inside would be a playing card with the paper wrapped around, which would be half the page, and their selected playing card. And I think oh, that was cool. even stronger. But then I got convinced of, no, the transposition from the book to the, the, the box would be good. So yeah, it was, it was all over the place. Um, so when, when, uh, when you do the show, the pen just comes at you. you. You have to keep the conversation going with Allison. She asks you a bunch of questions. She asked some better questions than the one they aired. They only aired one of all the questions. And then um, I was cool, uh, but you're keeping that conversation going. And then they turn and Penn was very complimentary. And then all of a sudden he talked as fast as I do. Did you hear how fast he talked? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it was like, blah, 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 wings, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, and I picked up winged horse was what I had in the first one. And uh, flap on out of here. And I couldn't even make heads or tails of anything else in between. It was down with the downbeat, in with the pocket, uh, uh, cooler this. And I'm going, yeah, but cooler, that, that doesn't say anything because you don't know where the cooler was, when the cooler was. Of course there's a cooler. It, it, it's a sealed deck of cards. Duh. Um, that doesn't <laughs> say you know anything. Uh, and he said right in the middle, which is not where it was. So I kind of looked at it, and uh, they cut out a whole segment. Um, because I, I, I said, I'm sorry, that went really fast. Uh, I said, when you said winged horse, did you mean Pegasus? And he said, yes. And I said, oh, then you're absolutely wrong. And you went, what? And, well, maybe I'm using the wrong term. I said, oh, no, you're using the right term. It's just wrong. Um, because I wanted to look like Pegasus page. But once again, I didn't like Pegasus page. I wanted my own version of it. So I created my own version that would have the torn page transposition. And uh, I was very happy with what I came up with. And I knew that I had them on that because they were going to go with Pegasus. And then cooler I didn't care about, pocket I used to top it, so I didn't have to worry about that. Everything was good, but that last word when he said flap on out of here, I went, and this is why I'm confused. I, I'm fine with not winning because I, I didn't go there for it. Uh, right. But the word flap for me meant something with a gimmick I had. But I'm beginning to think what he was doing was tying up the winged horse and flap on out of here. 
Yeah. And if, if he was tying up the winged horse with flap one out of here, then it was all wrong. But if he was talking about the gimmick, then he's got enough that I don't care. And so I just said, well, that last word gave me enough to think you've got a pretty good chance of it. And I just, it was easier to bail. I didn't want to look like a jerk. I didn't want to argue mm -hmm. anyone. I already said no twice. And they asked me again, but did he fool you? And I'm like, I kind of answered the question. It's like, I don't think that they got it. But I also didn't know if they did because I wasn't sure of what that relationship between. And in front of, you know, 700 people in, a, in, in the theater, I didn't want to go into detail. And I certainly didn't want to look like the jerk. I've seen guys who... who they use them, technicalities but, and yeah, whatnot. Who right? them didn't yeah. fool them. I would rather just be, you fooled me solid. Get off my stage, you rat yeah. bastard, or not. <laughs> and so I'm good with the or not because yeah. it was still a great experience. Uh, I had to come up with a magic trick in under 21 days. And uh, it's funny because I took one uh, video uh, from one of the Hidden Wonders once it was with my wife afterwards. I said, I need to send them something. So three days before I left for the filming, we filmed it, Lori and I. And I put it up on YouTube on a secret link and then sent it to them. And none of them watched it. None of them. <laughs> the only views are my views on it. And I'm like, wow. And um, I went and did the rehearsal. None of the producers came. Normally other producers all come to watch the rehearsal. It was just Mike Close, me, and the Allison stand-in. And Mike goes, that's what you're going to do? Yeah. Okay, great. And that was it. Mike didn't even ask me about solutions or anything. It wasn't until... Moments before I filmed, he came down to the dressing room and said, I just want to be clear that you did this and you did that. I said, no, I didn't use the Pegasus page. And that's what I'm hoping for too. And he was like, oh, good. And Mike actually helped me with uh, a part of the trick that they didn't, they didn't even talk about uh, how I got to the card or the page number or anything. They missed all of that. And that's the genius of Mike Close who came up with the idea. And I worked it in and found a way to use my HG with it. And it became this beautiful little piece that they missed it. The whole crux of the trick is that. And it's not even discussed in there. Not, not at all. So interesting, but you know, he's cool. He was trying to keep a code. He's got a lot of work to do in a short period of time. Right. I, they don't fault him in any way. They didn't care if I got one. I already got one uh, sitting behind me. I only have yeah. one because you know, they, they didn't have one in the first season. Um, but how cool is it that they, he rattled off so, so much so quickly and it's all in uh sort of, in code right yeah. so to a layperson watching it's like there's so much information in there and that's great television i think it is great uh, when when he did paul gertner's uh it was awesome because i know how paul's worked and he hit all the succinct moments in a row boom 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 and i was like oh that's so good and paul was like wow they hit every mark with mine i looked through and i'm like missed it missed it missed it missed it missed it and it's like maybe got a bit fine with that let's move on <laughs> so when i see ones where i'm fooled uh, which are rare, but they happen when I'm fooled and I listen to the code, I go, Oh, Oh, then rewind. I go, there you go. I really enjoy that. Yeah. That's cool. I really I like, like the that. Show. I like the people involved with it. They're all good people. Uh, the people behind the scene, people like Matt are just awesome guys. They just, it's a good, it's good for magic. And hmm. uh, maybe it'll be good for ticket sales. Uh, it's great for reaction videos. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, Sean, I have uh, I have a, one more question for you. Sure. And it's it's the question I ask everybody on the show. It's uh, so you're gonna imagine we're in, in a future situation, hypothetical, and a let's say an 
like an evil magician targets Sean, you. And he erases Sean Farquhar from the name, from the minds rather, of anybody that's ever known you. And for you to reverse this spell, so to speak, this uh, this trance that maybe this this guy has put on everybody, you need to do something that is so uniquely Sean Farquhar that it snaps everybody out of it. And you know deep down what this is. So what would that thing be that's so uniquely you that just snaps everyone out? Wow. That's a cool question. Um, Gee, I don't know what makes uniquely me that people will remember. I hope that they just recall and that they'd have a sense of deja vu. (laughs) (laughs) Deja vu. Deja vu. Um, Sometimes it takes four. Um, Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Shape of my heart. If I could could sit and just do it one time, I think that when it's all said and done, uh, I want it to be kind of my anthem, the thing that people remember me for. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the thing. Um, I don't know. I guess that would be the best. Yeah. My goal is just to share wonder. I don't know how I would do that with just one thing that's uniquely me. Okay. So if it, if it wasn't just one, what, what would you do then? If there were no rules, let's say. I still think your rules are good. The one thing I do is shape of my heart. Yeah. Of course, I want to do on some sort of broadcast so people could see it. Yeah. <laughs> And as it ended, I'd look at the audience and say, it's my job. And if they don't remember it from that, well, then I didn't do my job. I think that's it right there. I think you nailed it. Yeah, I guess so. It's a great question. I'm going to have to listen to some of your other ones so I can hear what other people's answers were. For sure. Yeah, no, I, this has been uh, an amazing experience, Sean. I, I just want to say thank you so much for, for slotting out some time in your busy life to to come on the podcast, Magician's Code here, and share some stories of your life and and help us as magicians grow and learn just from everything that you've done and everything that you've learned. You're passing down your wisdom, and that's just amazing. So thank you so much, Sean. Let me reciprocate. Thanks for inviting me to be a part of this. I, I love to to share. Uh, not everything I say is is for everybody. Uh, some people will learn some stuff. Some people will disagree. That's what's great about what we do. I think Eugene Berger said it best. Uh, we live in the house of magic and there's a room for everybody. Excellent. I love it. I love it, Sean. So the, the best way to reach you is uh, www.magichampion.com. Yeah. Correct? Magic yes. Champion. One C. I couldn't afford both. <laughs> Ah, magic champion. Okay, okay. Pay by the letter, right? Yeah. Magic champion, Facebook, Instagram, they're all um, magic champion with one C. Love it. I didn't Excellent. learn to spell. <laughs> awesome, Sean. Thank you again so much. And yeah, everyone go go check out his stuff. Obviously, you know who he is. And yeah, thank you again, Sean. Take Keep care. Well, keep safe and sane. Bye for now. And there you have it, everybody. That was Sean Farquhar. I'm just 
I'm at a loss for words right now. This was an incredible experience. I learned so much about, about Sean, about his, his story, his journey throughout his life in magic. And it's, it's, it's mind blowing, mind blowing, mind blasting even, (laughs) but yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm motivated. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's crush the day. Let's crush our goals. Let's elevate our entertainment, our magic to the next level. And let's, let's just keep going. Let's aspire to be more of ourselves in our performances, in our day-to-day lives and interactions. Let's do it. Let's go. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please be sure to drop a like, a comment, something like that whatever you want. We'll see you on the next episode or video or well, something. We'll see you soon. Peace.